All right, so this is a, this is a big day for me. It's a big, momentous kind of thing. My, my dad was a preacher, and um, I have, I've never done this before. Yeah, John's looking at me like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've done things like argue appeals to federal judges and stuff like that, you know, as a lawyer, which is way less pressure than this. Um, now, when I got up this morning, I was going to come out, my, my mother-in-law um, called me Brother Holyfield. <laughs> I, I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, it's great to have my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law, Bill and Nanette Ellington, here today, all the way from Mississippi. Um, yeah, I know, right? Um, it, just, it just confirms for me that um, I was supposed to do this today. Um, God works like that. Um, as um, uh, Brother Dennis was reading Psalm 139 earlier, you can see in God's word that he has a plan for you and he always has had a plan for you since the beginning of time, time immemorial, infinity past, he's had a plan for you today. And I think the book of Hosea and the things that we've been talking about and where we're at today, whoops, sorry, um, is going to be um, a great blessing for you. So we're going to be in uh, Hosea chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up and we'll put a Bible in it. Um, We're also very happy for you to take that home with you if you don't have a Bible at home. Nothing we do or say here today can change your life um, and your eternity the way that book can. So take it. Um, If you're new to Solana, one of the things we like to do is we like to walk through books of the Bible. Um, We try not to skip around too much. Um, We definitely don't skip over the hard parts. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, you know how true that is. Um, The walking through the first 10 chapters of Hosea has been very convicting for me, for sure. Um, It's peeled back the layers on a lot of sin and idolatry in my own life, and coming to terms with that has not exactly been an exercise in building self-esteem. So at this point in the book, um, the things are, they look rather bleak, frankly. Um, The people of Israel are in quite a state. Um, I will use Hosea's own words here from chapter 4 to sort of describe where things are at um, in the nation of Israel. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because there is shade there. So, not so great. Um, Let's look at slide one. So that's what's going on in Israel at this time. This is 750 B.C. So there's lots of sexual sin, idolatry everywhere, injustice is rampant, probably a lot of racism too, I would bet, at this time. Theft is commonplace. Life has little value and they are under the influence of godless cultures. Um, So, any of that sound familiar? Does that ring true for today? Um, It certainly 
seems like we have a lot going on that's very similar. If we're honest, uh, where we're at is very much the same place that the nation of Israel was all, that, all those millennia ago, almost 3,000 years ago. Um, I think it's safe to say that we esteem ourselves far too much. Um, we're filled with pride, and that, pro- that pride keeps us from seeing that we need Jesus. And even if we do see that we need something, pride makes us try to fix ourselves. Um, the culture likes to tell you um, that what you really need to do is believe in yourself. You just need to believe in yourself, which is, to me, just another way of saying you need to be your own God, um, which is definitely the wrong message. Um, If you sit down and watch the Disney Channel for 30 minutes with your kids, you will be astounded how many times that message is beamed into your living room. You just need to believe in yourself. So I did a little experiment this week. I, I went on YouTube. You guys know what YouTube is? Yeah, it's a glorious display of boobery, just complete nonsense. Anyway, so I typed into the search bar, you just need to believe in yourself. And one of the first videos that came up is this one. Hello, friends. I wanted to make this video to hopefully inspire you to do something that you didn't think was possible, Um, like I'm going to do with this board here. And what you need to do is to uh, set up something you want to do, uh, make a plan to go through with it, and then you, what, you have, what you have to do is make a plan of action, uh, follow through with it. You've got to believe in yourself. That's first, isn't it? Believe in yourself, formulate a plan of action, and follow through with it. <laughs> what you have to do is believe in yourself, make a plan of action, and follow through with it. And if you believe you can do something, then you can. Like, I can do with this board. Didn't believe in myself, no. Uh, funny, right? Um, but also true of us. Um, so now that we've done some hard work in Hosea to ferret out our own sin and idolatry, um, we could be tempted, and many of us may be tempted, to look inward into ourselves for the solution to that. You you might be about to make a mistake and start striving to fix yourself. Um, And I'm here to tell you, it just hurts, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, When I was a baby lawyer, I I went to work for this judge in Texas, and he was a super, super guy, great big man's man, and he, um, he, he had this smoking habit. He smoked two packs of Pall Malls a day. Anybody know what a Pall Mall is? It's like, it's like an angry man cigarette. Like, I'm, so, I'm a smoker. You know, that kind of cigarette. He was committed to it. But it was really bad for him, and so he was trying to quit. And so he tried all kinds of things to quit. I, he did this hypnosis thing 
which didn't work. He just sort of, you know, he was like spaced out, and which isn't good when you're a judge, right, to be hypnotized. There might be a rule against that. But um, then he tried Nicorette gum, and finally ended up wearing this patch, you know, and the only thing was he kept smoking. So he was wearing the patch, and he was smoking two packs of palm oils a day. So he's double dosing there, basically just banging his head against that board. And it doesn't work. It just hurts. Um, so I just want to challenge you to see in yourself possibly the tendency to do what this guy's doing. Um, whether or not you've ever said it out loud to yourself that I just need to believe in myself. Um, at various times, in lots of ways, um, we've all acted like uh, we believe in ourselves above everything else. So if you were caught up in that lie a month ago, uh, the book of Hosea must have seemed like a sneak attack, really. God is coming at you from over here, and you don't see it coming. Certainly, that's how it worked for me. Um, we need to see our, our need for something else in the middle of all this. Hosea is supposed to be a minor prophet, but, um, I mean, minor, what's a major? What's that going to be like? Because he has taken a wrecking ball to my self-centered existence in a big way. Um, so what next, right? Now that we're down here, um, our hearts are prepared for the great news of Hosea 11. God has set us up so that we are ready for his word um, in a powerful way. So let's read Hosea 11. Um, I've just got some stuff on a slide here that kind of summarizes how it goes, but um, let's just read it together. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword will rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. We shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. 
but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So that's my sermon, right? <laughs> Hosea 11 kind of preaches itself, doesn't it? It's incredible. Um, one of the, when I first read this, something that really struck me and really stood out is just how emotional and how loving God is. Um, it's, it's especially when he says things like, I loved him. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, the bands of love. I should have that tattooed on me somewhere. You know, like right there, the bands of love. I mean, the whole of the gospel in four words. I bent down to them and fed them. And then you can see how broken heart God is. My heart recoils within me at the thought of destroying us. His heart recoils within him. His compassion grows and warm and tender. Um, and then, of course, he makes the most astounding promise in the Bible, that he will not execute his burning anger. He will not come in wrath. Have you ever heard anyone draw a distinction between the mean old judgmental God of the Old Testament and the warm and fuzzy loving Jesus of the New Testament? Have you ever heard that? I hear that sometimes. Um, I mean, I think we could preach a whole series of sermons on how that's just not true. But Hosea 11 in particular completely explodes the myth of a God who is just waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you dead with a lightning bolt. That's not the God of Hosea 11 at all. He's just, look, there's a lot of smoting. Have you noticed that going on in the Old Testament? For sure. Because God is just. But as we see here in Hosea 11, God loves us um, more than we can possibly imagine. Because he loves us, he has purpose to rescue us. Um, Hosea makes it clear that our rescue is something that God does. It's not something we do or even can do. God saves us. There is no need for us to bang our heads against that board. We don't have to do it. The second thing that really stands out to me as I read um, Hosea 11 is just how relational God is. This is actually all the way through the whole book. I think it's not coincidental that God uses two specific kinds of human relationships to illustrate his relationship to us. Because this is how we understand relationship, is the way we relate to each other. Um, the first such relationship is the covenant relationship of marriage. I think there's a slide about that somewhere. Um, so we're, we're like um, an unfaithful spouse, right? So this first relationship in Hosea is, the, is a marital relationship, a covenant relationship. It's the, it's the relationship between Hosea and Gomer because God tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. Um, and so he does. He marries Gomer, and that kind of goes the way you think it would go. It's, kinda, it's crazy. You know, um, But I think God is trying to show us something about what it's like for him to be in a covenant relationship with us. Um, and look, it's hard for us to think of ourselves as an unfaithful spouse, for sure. Um, you know, by and large, I think we want to think of ourselves as good people. 
Um, but what does an unfaithful spouse do? They're in a covenant relationship with their spouse, but they give themselves to someone else. Uh, they chase after false gods. That's what they do. Every time we pursue an idol in our lives, that's what we do. I think I'm not too far out on a limb here when I say that we're Gomer in this story. That's who we are. We're not Hosea. Most of the times we're Gomer. Um, so we spent some time in recent weeks just examining these deep longings of our heart and the way those things work themselves out in idolatry. Um, and one of my deep longings is the longing for approval. It's, it's not enough for me to think a lot of myself. It's really important to me for other people to think well of me. Um, I was talking to the elders recently about this, um, and uh, I confessed um, one particular way that this has worked out in my life. Um, I, I, I got obsessed like 10 years ago with this car because I thought it was really cool, and it's really important for me to be cool, right? Not like Arthur Fonzarelli cool, you know, like, hey. But, you know, like hipster cool, you know, that's what I, see, it's so important to me, there are different kinds, you see, right? So, anyway, so I, I got obsessed with this car, and um, so I started going on the internet looking for this thing, and I searched the world over, and I finally found one I could afford, and I bought this thing sight unseen, and I had it shipped all the way from Rhode Island to Arkansas. And so we're getting this thing off the trailer when the guy delivers it, and it wouldn't start. So we finally got it started. And uh, so I, I'm thinking, like, well, that's a little problem that it doesn't start. But I can live with that because it's so cool, <laughs> right? And I look really cool in it. And I thought, well, and, the, you know, the crazy thing is this sounds really absurd when you say it. But this is how we think, right? I thought people would see me in that really cool thing and think I was cool, right? And I would, my idol, my need for approval would get fed. I'd be sucking all my friends into my thing. And interestingly, the, the problem turns out to be the, the truck had a rusty flywheel on it. If you guys know anything about cars, it takes a lot to make your flywheel rust so bad it won't start. And if you got rust on your flywheel, you got rust everywhere. And so no sooner had I bought this thing, it started to fall apart. And that's how your idols work. They don't work, right? You get it, and there might be some momentary satisfaction from it, and then it immediately starts to rust and corrode and fall apart. And, you know. So I eventually sold the thing for a fraction of what I paid for it, and I bought a Toyota, <laughs> which, which starts. It's awesome. You know, I can actually go places. <laughs> you know. All right. So um, I, one way to, to deal with an idol like that is, I think, is to replace the idols in your life with something much greater and much higher. Um, there's a Scottish theologian, his name is Thomas Chalmers, um, and he wrote a, a really cool paper some years ago called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Um, and I just want to quote really quickly um, something from the very first paragraph that really really struck me. Um, he says, one way to displace from the human heart its love of the world is by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, 
which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. God has made a promise to his people. It's not contractual, it's covenantal, like the marriage of Hosea to Gomer. The promise is not conditional. God made this promise because he's God. He said, I'm not a man, I'm the most high God. I make this promise because I'm God. I'm in a covenant. His promises can't be earned, they're simply given. We need only accept it. When you experience this kind of love, it matures into a completely different kind of reason to forsake your sin and idolatry. It's not an obligation anymore. It's out of a grateful heart. We grow in our desire for relationship with God. We gain a new affection that expels from our hearts our love of the world. The second human relationship God uses in Hosea to illustrate his relationship with us is the relationship of father and child. Um, For good or ill, we all bring a lot of baggage to this illustration. Um, The world is full of people who have very serious father wounds Um, because human fathers are that. They are human beings and they're very fallible and they can really leave a mark on their children. Um, And and if there's anything uh, that I could say to a person who has that kind of hurt in their life, uh, my prayer is that you'll see that God is a perfect, loving Father. And that He is doing a, a miraculous thing in your life. As I look back on my own life, I can see how God was working to draw me to Him even decades before I was born. Before I was born, God was arranging things so that he could pull me to him. It's an incredible story. Let me share a little bit of that story with you, and I hope that it'll prompt you to see how God has been the father to you in your life. Um, My dad was a pastor for 40 years. Right here on the left is my dad graduating from Bible college. Pretty cool, right? He was a tall drink of water, as they would say in Mississippi. Um, I found that picture um, in this Bible, which was my dad's last Bible. My mother gave it to me earlier this year. And it's the most amazing thing anyone has ever given me. Uh, not just because it's the perfect word of God, but because it represents to me my own loving earthly father as well. Um, So, yeah, if you guys want to come check this out later, you should. When I was reading Hosea 11, by the way, um, he had underlined a bunch of these words that helped me see what Hosea 11 is really about. It's about the love of a father. It's just amazing. (laughs) So, thought I'd share that with you. Um, On the Right here is, that's me with hair, if you were wondering. (laughs) I'm the little one on the left right there, and that's my mom and dad. This is the day that our church building, First Church of God in Kilgore, Texas, was dedicated, the new building. Um, My dad took that little bitty church on Martin Street in Kilgore, Texas, and it was running about 20. And uh, through the power of God, the church grew and grew and grew, and Uh, We built a new building, and this was the beginning of that. It's just 1972. 
So that's how that got started. Um, he, was a, he was a pretty cool guy. Um, the second thing that really stands out to me, I'm sorry, um, got a little emotional there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, interestingly, um, at my dad's funeral, just a little off the script, but this is a good one. My, uh, my Aunt Frances, who's my dad's oldest sister, my dad died kind of young, about 67, and um, my Aunt Frances came up to me. She said, you know, Jimmy, everybody called him Jimmy, um, Jimmy had a special relationship with the Lord from the time he was 15 when he decided that he was going to go into the ministry. Um, and every summer, my dad would go to a church camp, a little place called Camp Dixon in Dixon, Mississippi, so it's kind of like Hume Lake, except it's a lot harder, and they have giant bugs, <laughs> and no air conditioner. So, um, and actually, Tanya's mother and Tanya's uncle went to church camp at the same camp with my dad. And Tanya's grandmother was the camp nurse all those years ago, late 1950s. And in 1984, um, as I was doing something kind of like this at the water fountain, because that's what I did, you know, under the big old oak tree at Camp Dixon, I met Tanya. It's strange how God works, isn't it? He knits all these things together. It's a pretty awesome and powerful thing. I think one of the reasons why it's easy for me to see God as a loving father is because my dad was a good father. Um, he taught us to love Jesus. Um, sometimes, uh, because we, there were five boys in our house, and we were really close in age, and so it was like, you know, a street gang, basically, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> or a basketball team, I'm not sure which, but, um, so we, you know, we fought a lot, we did all kinds of stupid things, and so my dad had to discipline me, and, and he would do that, um, but he would never let it go at just that. He would always take the time to wrap his arms around me and say, I love you, son, and that's the reason why I'm disciplining you, because I love you. Um, it's pretty awesome to see that kind of thing, and, and that stuck with me. Um, in the long run, I think that made a big difference. Um, in the short term, it did not. <laughs> um, my, my crazy testimony is, um, so when my dad, when, my, when I was 17, um, I was pretty rebellious, and I moved out of my parents' house. Um, I thought I had to do everything, and I had done really good on one of those college test things that they give you, you know. So I got a full scholarship to a little college in the, my hometown called William, William Carey College, which was named for the great Baptist missionary. And um, my, my faculty advisor, I met with him my first day of class, and he said something to me. His name was Professor Myron Newcaster, and he had a Ph.D. from Oxford and one from Yale, also a very smart guy. And he said, I see here, Mr. Holyfield, that you're very smart. And I said, yes, sir. So uh, maybe smart, I don't know, definitely not humble. Um, and he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, too bad for you, it's never enough to be smart. And I wish that I had listened to him. Because within a year, I had flunked out of college completely. Um, I had um, lost my scholarship. I was living in this fourplex 
that was in an old, dilapidated Victorian house that had a big hole in the ceiling over the toilet, which was kind of convenient because when it poured rain, it just went <laughs> in the toilet. I mean, looking for the silver lining in this cloud, right? The floorboards, they were worn out so bad that you could see the, the ground underneath the house through the cracks in between. And uh, I had wrecked my car twice in a year. It was this beautiful brown 1979 Mazda 626. Love this car. And we called it the Raisin because it was brown and wrinkled after I got done with it. <laughs> right, I know, right? So um, anyways, I had pretty much made a complete mess of my life. Um, my neighbor was a drug dealer, um, so we would drink a six-pack of beer together every night and do whatever else we did. So um, I had wrecked it completely, and I wasn't even 19. So one day there's a knock on the door, and I go to the door, and there's my mother. Um, and she came in my dad's truck, and she was there to get me. She didn't ask, um, and I didn't ask either, and I didn't say no. We just packed it all up, and I went home. So over the next year or so, I, I sort of worked myself back out of that mess. My dad would drive me to work every day, and um, I worked at a place called Kimes Country Catfish. Sounds as awesome as it is. <laughs> um, and in this place, God put some very important people in my life. Um, Uncle Forrest Henserling, who was like a grandfather to me, and uh, a guy named Dean Shanley. Uh, who was a paratrooper, he just came out of the 82nd Airborne, and he was on his way to law school. And he had a, a profound influence on my choice of career. And then there was Alice Johnson, strongest woman I've ever met in my whole life. She was the manager of the kitchen. And Alice um, had marched with Dr. King at Selma, and she was putting her son through the Naval Academy at the time. And um, she had a huge influence on how I see justice in our world and the desire to pursue that. So that, all that is the reason why I ended up going down the path that I did um, to be a lawyer. Um, in any case, I was still a rebellious teenager and my parents were doing the best they could with me, but eventually they had to ask me to move out again because I was acting like an idiot. Um, so I moved out again and uh, sort of fell back into some of the habits that I was in, but God was working. He was doing his thing. And no, it was six months after I had moved out of my parents' house again, I got a call out of the blue at work one day, and it was Tanya. They had moved to Texas a year and a half earlier and had moved back. And it's like, hey, when can I come see you? And I was like, whenever. And so, you know, a couple of days later, she showed up at my work, which was really awkward because I worked with my girlfriend at the time. But. <laughs> Yeah, she didn't care about any of that, man. Um, so <laughs> anyway, you know, so she showed up and, and, and we talked and it's like, when are you going to come see me? And so I went that weekend to see her. They lived three hours away and um, Tanya's mom and dad were unbelievably gracious to me at that time. I was teetering on the edge and they gave me a safe place. Um, they probably should have said, stay away from my daughter, <laughs> you know, if only they had known, but they didn't. And it was such a normal place, and it felt really good. I hadn't seen normal in a long time, and it was God working in my life. Um, he had been arranging things, and I didn't even know it. Um, 
I mean, this, the, the, the testimony has another 20 years of this and this and this, you know, up and down. Um, but I think that's really the whole point of Hosea 11. Hosea 11 is the good news. It's the good news. It's the gospel written 800 years before Jesus. How, how incredible is that? The foreshadowing of Jesus coming and God making a way for those of us who are wayward sons to be drawn back to him. It's such a powerful image. It's such an amazing truth. Uh, God wants, to, wants, us, wants you to accept his mercy. He forbears in his righteous judgment. We deserve it. But he's made a promise. He forgives our debt at an unimaginable cost. The life of his only son. A father who loves the way God loves gave his only son. He lived a perfect life and he died for our sins and he was raised again in absolute victory over death forever. And you can have that. And as if that weren't enough, he made a way for us to escape judgment because not just because it's a promise, but because he loves us. It's not just because of the promise that he made. It's because he loves us. Can you even fathom that? Can you get your brain around that? I don't think this is a thing that you get because I made a cool argument. This is some conclusion you reach at the end of a logical syllogism. It's not that. It's experience. It's to be experienced. The love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 5, 5 says. The Holy Spirit mediating God's love into your heart. That's not a, oh, I got that. That's an experience. And I want that for you today. More than anything else, I want you to have that experience, to be free from the sin and idolatry in your life because of the promise that God has made. So when you, fa when you face temptation to sin and idolatry in your life, and you will every day, don't be overwhelmed. Don't try to be a good person. Don't bang your head against that board. Listen as Jesus calls you. Listen as the lion roars and return to him. Let me pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you're a father and that you love us. And we thank you, Lord, for your amazing gift of your son, Jesus Christ, for your unmerited favor, a thing we could never earn. Thank you, Lord, for freeing us from having to earn it, from having to fix ourselves. I just pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today who hasn't accepted this amazing gift, that you would move in their hearts, unlock that door, and make a way. We pray this, Lord, in your name, in the name of your Son, 